Hello and welcome to Black Lives Texas, a podcast from the Institute of Urban Policy Research and Analysis, also known as IUPER at UT Austin. I'm your host for this special post-election coverage episode, Mike Lavariza. Today we are welcoming Brianna Jenkins from the Austin Justice Coalition, as well as Dr. Tasha Philpott, who is a professor of government at UT Austin. We discuss the election results from November, recent happenings in Austin and Texas at large, as well as reactions to the first 90 days of the Biden administration. Let's jump to our conversation. Even though I just uh, introduced both of you, if you wouldn't mind also sort of saying your names and uh, adding some additional information. Hi, my name is Brianna Jenkins, or Bree Jenkins. I am the Director of Development for Austin Justice Coalition. I also have my own consulting business where I do diversity, equity, inclusion work, development work, um, and a lot of public speaking um, around racial justice, uh, Black Lives Matter, LGBTQA issues, and the like. Um, and I also host a podcast called The Tea with Bree. Hi, I'm Tasha Philpott. I am a professor in the Department of Government here at the University of Texas at Austin. I also have affiliations with the Center for African and African American Studies, as well as the Center for Women and Gender Studies. My particular expertise is in American politics with an emphasis on race and gender. Thank you both. So I just wanted to start off just, um, you know, what are your general thoughts and feelings? So the topic for uh, this podcast is going to center around post-election results uh, with respect to how it affects Texas, uh, the nation, and uh, especially the uh, African-American community. So uh, as Dr. Philpott, we'll start with you. You know, What are some of your general thoughts and feelings? I think we're off to an interesting start with the Biden and Harris administration. I thought perhaps that with the election results and after the insurrection on the Capitol that we would start to see business as usual and the two parties going about governing the way that we have recognized in the past. But it seems as if Trumpism is now firmly uh, ingrained in the Republican Party, and he's still wielding a lot of power. And so I'm anticipating, you know, the upcoming elections to see just whether or not the GOP is going to go back to its historical legacy, or is this really going to be the new face of the Republican Party? Um, it seems they seem a little bit uh, obstructionist uh, in the first, you know, honeymoon period of the Biden-Harris administration. Um, but, you know, as things progress, it'll be interesting to see how, how things come to what is going to be the, the norm or, you know, the overused phrase, the new normal. It's uh, interesting you mentioned that, uh, Tasha, because I think, uh, you know, after we, after maybe five weeks uh, with, uh, with barely a whisper, um, you know, former President Trump he came back on the stage and seemed to uh, revisit uh, a lot of the same grievances plus new ones over um, uh, over the uh, regarding the election. Um, did you see any of his comments? And it seems like the message for the GOP is going to be a lot of the same for the next four years, as opposed to sort of a postmortem that you know parties seem to do after they lose not just the presidency but also um, you know lose Congress. It seems like there there isn't really going to be any sort of new playbook. It's just going to be kind of doubling down on what's worked in the past. So what's interesting, and I think what, what really brought the reality of race relations in the United States to the forefront was just how big uh, and broad of a support base Donald Trump had. And so political parties, they're not 
altruistic organizations. They're not there to facilitate the facilitate the democratic process for the purpose of the people. They're really there to gain power uh, through elections by getting their members elected. And I think in as much as the Republican Party recognized just how broad base, broad of a base they have with, with the Trump supporters, they've kind of um, they've kind of hit a niche where they can be pushed into electoral successes by keeping the same tenor, by writing out this stolen election rhetoric uh, and really uh, campaigning against the, the status quo. Obviously agree with everything Tasha just said. I think watching the last four years of Trump be in office and the permission he basically gave to folks to be ableist and racist and xenophobic and all these other sort of negative tropes and how he was able to weaponize that and make it very much us versus them and making it very much seem like if you support me, if you are a Trump supporter, then you are you are um, essentially right in, in feeling all these ways because these people over here are doing X, Y, and Z to you. And so after the insurrection or while the insurrection was happening and seeing the response from a lot of people being like, I'm shocked this is happening. And, you know, a lot of Black folks who weren't shocked. We, we have been in this country forever now. We have seen how um, there are the two different ways in which black people or people of color are treated differently than white people. And so you see these folks at the insurrection being basically handheld out of the Capitol. Um, but then we do a sort of split screen and look how peaceful protesters from Black Lives Matter of all races were treated last summer. And so I, I think the protection that a lot of folks felt being Trump supporters is something that they're really having to come to terms with now. Um, and then also the comment we made um, about, you know, the next, the honeymoon phase, right? Because like Biden, it's now his first 90 days. And even folks who are Trump supporters who are still saying that the election was stolen. I mean, we have a whole new president who's now enacting a lot of different things. And yet you still have folks who are saying the election was stolen because Trump didn't win. But yet you have these states where Republicans and GOP winners won and those were fun and those results were right. So I think nationally, we're still seeing the sort of, you know, quote, healing process of coming back from four years of trauma for a lot of folks. Um, and moving forward of like, how do, and Biden was saying, like, how do we come together as one country now after being so divided for four years? Uh, great point. Um, so I wanted to sort of move on to some uh, local issues um, and specifically, uh, Bree, uh, concerning your organization, uh, a topic your organization works, is heavily involved with um, the AGC, uh, which is housing and police reform are two of your main priorities. And, you know, what, what measures do you propose to implement these policies? And also, have you seen wider support for you know, defunding APD and other measures to uh, implement transformative justice? I think we first have to acknowledge that while Austin is seen as a very progressive and liberal place, that progressive and liberal does not mean anti-racist. And we see this a lot with Austin's Black population being about 8%, between 8 and 10%. But then the homeless population or people experiencing homelessness, about 32% of those folks are Black. And so we see these huge disparities of Black people who live here, a good chunk of them are experiencing homelessness. And so when we talk about housing, we have to talk about 
access and the affordability and Austin's becoming one of those cities that isn't affordable, right? Like we literally see how 35 splits us into two halves of West and East of five. And so, you know, AJC is really focusing on housing. We were able to help defund the police budget and get, you know, um, folks into housing and also offer a fourth option of um, emergency response when you call 911. So it is now fire, health, police, and then also mental health emergency, um, as well as helping to move um, rape kit tests out of APD into another section. And so while we've seen a lot of good stuff and positivity come from defunding the police, there are a lot of folks who still have such an issue with that term um, or people who still don't understand the the term defund the police, where when we talked about defunding Planned Parenthood, those are the same folks who completely understood what that meant. And so for us to talk about in, sense, in the sense of a word, re reallocating funds. Um, I think we've seen a lot more positivity around that, but still that fear of, you know, if I call the police, they won't show up for us. That's not what that means. It's just saying we're taking funding out of a really large police budget and moving it into other sectors. Um, there was once the study that said, if we cut the APD budget by 8%, we can completely eradicate homelessness in Austin, an 8% an 8 budget, right? And so we see all of this money that could be used um, to really make Austin a more equitable city, a more safe city. Um, we have this initiative called Austin is Safer When, and it is a coalition of um, different organizations talking about Austin is safer when people have housing, when we have access to healthcare, when we get rape kids tested, where we have, you know, all these different things that go into effect to make Austin a safer city for all people. So I think if we talk about Austin locally, that's what's going on. But even if we genuinely speak it out into Texas locally as a whole state, um, we just had that huge storm. So we also now have to talk about power and electricity and water um, and how people respond to disasters. I mean, that was like the first, what, national snow disaster we had here in Texas and got a state of emergency. But it's been almost two weeks since the storm and there are still huge apartment complexes and neighborhoods without water, um, which then, again, not, I know we're talking Texas, but it makes me think again about um, the disparities of like Flint still has, Flint still doesn't have clean water, right? Like we can't continue to ignore how our states and our cities fail us. But also on the other side, I think we have to remind folks that everyone who is in office works for us and we have the right to call these folks. And I mean, we saw uh, Ted Cruz getting on a flight <laughs> to Mexico and pretending like his intention was always to come back, but he wasn't expecting anyone to see him there. And so we have these politicians who literally will leave us to suffer if it means that they can keep their seat and we, you know, this, the, and the status quo isn't, isn't checked. Yeah, and off, considering that point, uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, a Ted Cruz. It kind of shows that I think there are certain different levels of accountability that officials feel, and you could even make the argument that maybe some members of certain political parties don't feel any accountability at all. Um, do you think there's, a for all the reforms that you and AJC um, advocate for, do you think there's a positive response for that on the local level? And then let's sort of... Um, you know, on a local level in terms of Austin, obviously bigger cities tend to have, you know, politics that support those measures. But outside the cities in Texas, do you think statewide there's that sort of support? As a person who's not from Texas, but who has lived here for almost five years, it has been super interesting to see how Texans literally think that they're their own country. And it has been really interesting in, in trying to how, figuring out how to combat that and make Texas a really equitable state. Um, and so like, I feel like locally in the larger cities, like 
Austin, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, you see a lot of folks trying to make these cities more equitable and, and affordable in a place where people can come and live comfortably. Um, but if we look at Texas as a whole, I mean, we look at how people vote, right? Like Texas has historically been a red state. And, you know, I think we really saw a shift when Beto ran for Senate and that kind of like turning of purple and, you know, now looking at other states that did turn blue after the presidential election and seeing how many folks voted blue or Democratic during the presidential election this past cycle. Um, so I think there's a lot of change coming, although I say that and I'm still disheartened to listen to city council calls here in Austin and hear people who live in more, um, for lack of a term, like wealthy neighborhoods, like the folks calling from like Westlake and Northern Austin and talking about how they don't want these sites where folks experiencing homelessness can live because then they'll feel unsafe or they don't want it next to a school. But there's another stat that says about 28 school children are experiencing homelessness. So then who do you want in this city that you you claim to be so um, liberal and, and open and accepting? And then yet yeah, when we have the option to house people and help them get the life that they have wanted to live and, and help them get there, we also have the folks who call against it. And so, yeah, I mean, we we for sure always hear the negative. I mean, AJC is a mostly black org. Um, there's about 15 of us on, full, on full-time staff um, and more than 80% of us are black. And so we still, as a black organization or black led organization, deal with racism and threats and folks who don't like the work that we do. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, while we, we love the work that's going on, we also know that we're not going to be for everyone. And we know that the people we are for will appreciate the work that we do. And uh, my next question is uh, for you, Dr. Philpott. And uh, Bree touched upon this just sort of, um, I think, sort of the blue wave that was supposed to transform Texas into a democratic state. Didn't happen yet again. I think as a, you know, a professor of government, there's always been this talk about how Texas eventually will go blue. And yet again, it didn't happen. I guess my question for you is, you know, do you ever see this happening or is this just something that's we're just a parlor game we're going to play every four years where we hope Texas is finally going to be purple or even blue, but it just doesn't happen because of um, the GOP's control? Yeah, I think the expectation that that Texas will be more purple or even go blue is based on the assumption that it'll just happen. Like we'll just wake up one day and that will be our politics. When if we look to examples like Georgia, it wasn't just a happenstance. There were people on the ground mobilizing, getting new voters to the polls, making sure old voters go to, went to the polls, overseeing voter suppression and making sure that that wasn't, wasn't gonna be an issue in the election. So unless there's an infrastructure built in the state of Texas that's directly responsible for making sure that that same type of pattern occurs, then it's not just gonna happen. We have a lot of voters, uh, well, we have a lot of non-voters. There are a lot of assumptions about how the demographic nature of Texas will vote. And the idea that it's becoming more racially diverse, racially and ethnically diverse, doesn't necessarily translate into more democratic. So we see during the Beto uh, Cruz election a few years ago, that still only 60% of Latinos voted for, for Beto. Um, not so much on African-American. African-Americans are still voting, you know, 85 to 95% Democratic. But given that they're a much smaller population in Texas compared to Latinos, you really have to think about how mobilizing that group is going to then swing or not swing the electoral outcomes. So is it fair to say, uh, Dr. Philpott, that, you know, even if 
um, Texas does become purple, that doesn't necessarily, you know, a change in control by a political party wouldn't necessarily benefit people of color in a disadvantage. Not necessarily, but one of the things we have to remember is, you know, that the congressional elections, the senatorial elections, and the presidential elections are important. But what we really need to be looking at are some of those more local elections, particularly those for judgeships um, and DAs and people oversee the criminal justice system. So maybe the state as a whole doesn't go blue, but we really need to think also about getting more progressive people in these lower level offices that can make a direct impact on the everyday living of people in those areas. Um, next question is, the recent winter storms and subsequent mass power outages reflected the social inequities throughout Texas. And obviously a way to address those inequities is through the political process. But because of GOP control and rampant gerrymandering, what can actually be done politically to avoid such instances from occurring again? You know, after, again, I'm, I'm originally from Connecticut. And so coming from a state that is legitimately prepared for storms. Like my dad does DOT. So he's out there plowing the roads and shoveling and all that sort of stuff. Um, but to see nationally how a lot of folks who don't live here were essentially saying that like Texans deserve this and look at how you vote. And I was reading something online that was like the folks who were saying this, like, number one, we don't have the infrastructure. So we're not, we're, we weren't prepared. We don't have salt trucks. We don't have sand trucks. We don't have shovels. I didn't have an ice scraper. Like we're not prepared for this. Right. So it, it's the same as if a hurricane or a tornado happened in like Washington, right? Like you wouldn't fault them for that. Right. But then politically, when they talk about you voted this in, no, I didn't. I did. I don't vote red. I don't vote Republican. I don't vote conservative. I don't vote moderate even. Um, I'm probably like the most liberal liberal you'll ever meet. But to hear that people who are suffering and dying in the streets during a snowstorm that they had no control over in a state where, yeah, we're nice 90% of the year, but that 10% where people are literally losing their homes. We had people who died from carbon monoxide poisoning, trying to stay warm. We had people set fires accidentally and people who were experiencing homelessness who literally froze to death. And so while the majority may have voted red or to keep these officials in their positions of power, you can't, you can't tell people who voted oppositely that they deserve this or that they could just leave Texas. That, that's, a, that's a white supremacist way of thinking. If you don't like it, you can leave. But some people can only afford to live in Texas. Um, so yeah, I, I think about that often of like, while I may live in a state that is not conducive to my political affiliations, I don't live in a city that is, that I live in a city that does, right? Like I live in Austin, a place that is supposedly very progressive and liberal and I've been able to see that at work. Um, so yeah, I think that's something that people need to keep in mind when saying like Texans deserve this or you vote, you, you get who you vote for. And it's like, I didn't, I didn't vote for this. No one deserves this. No one deserves to be impacted by a national disaster that we had no control over. Um, yeah, I think that answers the question. <laughs> yeah. I've lived here for almost 20 years and this was the very first time that we've ever had this type of scenario. So as Bree said, we just weren't prepared because this was not something that we could have expected. I mean, yes, it was predicted. And I think what a lot of people forget is we did our due diligence. You know, we had our water and we went to the grocery store. What we didn't expect was for electricity to go out and for water to just stop. And that that's really what cut us off guard. Uh, 
And I just, I don't subscribe to the idea that anybody deserved what, what happened. People don't deserve to freeze to death. Certainly uh, not based on some, you know, the choices of people that they, they've never met. Gerrymandering, uh, as you know, if you look at, at an electoral map of Austin, it's probably one of the grossest examples of gerrymandering. The city of Austin's divided into what, five different congressional districts? I live in North Austin and my congressional district goes from here to Waco and College Station. There should be no reason in a, in a city that is, that's as large as Austin for me to be voting with people who I have absolutely nothing in, in common with, not geographically, not ideologically, not demographically. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I think it has, has a big, big impact because it's diluting voting. It's diluting on purpose, right? It's by design that uh, particularly now we'll be looking towards that 2020 was a census year. So we are going to be going into rounds of redistricting. And it is by design that power is drawn in a way that supports and, and keeps in the, the party of power, which in, in Texas at this moment is, is the Republican Party. And so that's that stuff beyond my control. I vote in every election. I voted in every election since I was 18 years old. But there's not enough voting. You know, I'm one person. And there's not enough voting I could do that would have switched the power balance here. I would love to jump in and, and piggyback off that of the gerrymandering and not, I mean, I guess, like I said, I've only lived here almost five years. And so this congressional, um, the latest congressional um, race I got, I voted. And to see, like you're saying, how diluted the Austin vote is because they know the power that Austin has, right? Like, so we have Julie Oliver who ran for office. She was... Austin, Colleen, like completely out, like hours away from us. And, and Texas is huge. And so you have these folks who run for office who, there's thing about how like unfair that is to the people who live in these spaces. Like if I ran for office, I live in Austin. I don't know what's going on in Colleen. How dare I feel like I can speak and represent those folks and we don't, we might not align. We might not have the same experiences like you were just saying. And so while it was a census year and I am super hopeful, but you know, like you also said, we see how these positions of power really hold on to them by continuing to dilute the progressive democratic opposite vote to make sure that these people stay in power. Yeah, I'm just curious. I mean, what are some of the remedies? I mean, obviously the party in power gets to draw the congressional districts. So I'm just curious because I also think I've also read that there's sort of been a national appetite to sort of, you know, rethink the whole idea of the electoral college because the fact that huge states such as uh, California, which, you know, tilt blue, have the same amount of you know, senatorial representation as the Dakotas, or, you know, one Dakota has the same amount of senatorial votes. So, you know, there seems, there seems to be uh, some disaffection with that. It just seems that, you know, you have the electoral college, you have gerrymandering, and you have voter suppression that goes on. There seems to be a lot of, um, a lot of pushback and a lot of, you know, uh, criticism of this idea of one person, one vote. I mean, what can actually be done in terms of, you know, uh, I'll split this into bringing like an activist level and Dr. Philpott on a sort of uh, government level that can actually be done to fix this. And is it something that can be fixed if one party wants to do everything it can to stay in power? I mean, I think like you're saying, we first have to talk about voter registration and voter suppression. I mean, to register as a voter here in Texas is like, 
borderline impossible. There's so many things you have to put into place. You have to do a by paper. You have to have a certain person who can register you, but only in the county that you're registered. Like there's just so many hoops to jump through. And then we talk about identification and your name on your license has to match your name on your registration card. And we see how a lot of uh, voters were purged in Georgia back when Stacey Abrams first ran because of the spelling of their names. Do they have an accent and just literal racism at work? Like if you have an accent or a hyphen or any sort of quote special character in your name, um, it would be uh, purged if it didn't match your license or whatever else. Um, so I think number one is the way that we can book every, everything else online. I can pull my social security, I can pay my student loans, I can do all these other things online. Why can't I register as a voter? Um, and then also talking about voting. Why does voting have to, you know, why aren't we making voting more accessible? And we saw this kind of taking place with COVID. Uh, you know, we have longer early voting dates. Um, we have people who can vote from their car with, uh, with iPads or with tablets. And just making it, you know, you could do mail-in ballots if you were sick or had a disability. But then on the other hand, you couldn't count COVID as a disability, right? Like there were just all these different hoops and things to jump through, um, which that's how they keep people from voting, specifically communities of color, marginalized folks. Um, we have people who have disabilities who can't get to the polling locations or who can't see because they're blind or deaf because they can't or they say so they can't hear or you know there's just all these different things that go into making sure voting is accessible um so i think there's a whole system that ha that's going to see a sort of change around that um, i think a lot of folks have been working to make sure that they are constantly registered to vote whenever you move do a new <laughs> voter registration i don't care if it's not an elect a quote election year um just constantly checking your voter registration um also paying attention to elections that happen locally. A lot of stuff that happens to you happens on a local level first. And so like here in Texas, sorry, here in Austin, we have a May election coming up, but a lot of people don't know about that. That's in two months, right? And it's it's now in Austin talking about, are we switching to a strong mayor sort of system? Um, the camping ban is back on the ballot, which a lot of folks don't know about. Like there's a lot of stuff happening, but if we aren't making politics accessible for folks, also. Um, so it's it's like, where do people get that information? It's a ledge session. Where are people hearing about Texas ledge and where to give testimony because it's online? There's just a lot that's happening to kind of make sure that people don't have access to politics. And I think folks who are in this space constantly working to make sure that they do. Um, but it's, again, a systematic thing to make sure that folks who, who could change the system don't know that they can change the system. Yeah, I think um, just to echo what Brie was saying, it's it's an uphill battle. We have institutions that were specifically built to prevent from a wide democracy, a, a, a wide swath of people being able to participate in. And so, you know, how do you change institutions that were never built to facilitate that process? The Electoral College was put in place specifically for slave owning states to maintain their power. So we're talking about making more democratic making a system more democratic that wasn't built to be democratic. I think that's a million dollar question, right? How do you how do you progress from that without dismantling the whole system? And part of the, the beauty of the United States up until, you know, January 6, 2021, was that we had a fairly peaceful transition of, of power from one election to the next. And we really did benefit from a sense of stability that, say, other uh, industrialized nations didn't. So, you know, how do you how do you make the system more fair and equitable without tearing it down completely? Oh, great points. 
So I want to switch gears slightly and sort of talk about um, Austin specifically. So despite COVID and its associated economic disruption, um, Austin has seen uh, record housing prices and notably Silicon Valley companies have moved to the area. Um, this is continuing, argu arguably accelerating uh, gentrification. What can be done to protect long-term residents, especially citizens of color, from being pushed out of the city? Shameless plug. Um, we also talk about AAJC um, housing for all, essentially. And so it's a partnership we have with another organization here of folks who live in Austin who can send letters to where they live, like if you live in apartment complexes, letting your landlords and apartment complexes know that we want to have affordable housing in these sites. Um, I think we also see this with folks who want to buy a house in Austin. It is super expensive now, um, but there are first-time homebuyer um, kind of initiatives that you can get. But I think it's, again, doing that research, research and finding it. Um, but I think it's also reminding these new companies as they come in um, to make a sort of way for folks who are low income or living in poverty or experiencing homelessness to also apply for these jobs. I mean, we have Tesla moving here and you're telling me we can't get someone who does STEM or um, kind of factory line working to teach these folks how to, how to get a job there or, or interview them for work there. I think there's a lot of different ways that we can go about it, but I also know that it takes a lot of people willing to step up and say it, right? Like people who are experiencing homelessness may not have access to a shower or an address to use to even apply for a job. Um, so, you know, maybe there's a nonprofit that would be willing to be that per that address or that place for them to shower and get them ready for an interview. Um, I think it's gonna take a lot of sort of coalition and in, in, in um, community activism work to make sure that we make Austin, a city of access for a lot of folks, uh, for all folks, and um, no matter what education level, no matter what race, whatever marginalization you may hold or intersection you may hold. Um, but I think it's a lot of talking to these big companies of like, you have all of this access and you're coming into a community that is experiencing all this stuff. What are you willing to give back? And I hate to be like, well, give them a tax cut, but we know that money talks. And so we do maybe give a tax cut if you're willing to hire X amount of folks who are living in poverty or experiencing poverty. Um, but it's a lot of thinking outside the box, making it happen um, and knowing that it's just like paying it forward. Just to, to add on to that, I think that we're starting to reach our feverish pitch when it comes to homelessness here. I was driving around the city the other day and I, can't remember a time when I've seen so so many tent cities and so many people, you know, living under under our uh, our freeways under I I thirty five and one eighty three and the like. And I think that as more people move into the city, their own self interest is going to say, I don't I don't want this. I don't want to see it. So you know, self interest is probably going to push us to rethinking. Um, the housing situation in Austin. And I know a lot of pushback is that, you know, nobody wants low income housing in their neighborhood. But the truth of the matter is everybody at this point has low income housing in their neighborhood. If you count where all of the, the communities of, of unhoused people are throughout the city. So I think we can expect a, a little bit movement on that, not because we're thinking progressively, but because people want to maintain their property values as they move in. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen in terms of affordable housing. Just as someone who's looking to buy a house now, there is nothing in the city of Austin that 
that even qualifies as what, what we would have considered a starter home. All of those communities, um, you know, Bree mentioned that the division between East and West with I-35, when I first moved here, you know, it was undesirable to live on the east side of I-35. Now it's unrecognizable that historic rich black community that used to exist over there has been pushed out. And so I don't know if that's gonna, if we're gonna see a reversal in that. I, I imagine we won't, um, unless there's a, a, a deep economic housing crisis that hits the city of Austin. What would you say are the three main issues uh affecting Austin. And I don't, you don't need to like rank them necessarily, but just like three issues that, um, you know, folks, folks should be aware of. I think it's fair to say that affordability is one of them. Um, but what would the other two be? Infrastructure. I would say food insecurity. We live in a food desert in a lot of parts of Austin. Based on, based on those uh, three, those issues affecting Austin, what do you see happening in terms of the city council level and uh, the local level to, to address those issues? Um, I think it's always super interesting to note that I feel, and I'm speaking for me as not a representative agency, I feel as though um, we are still lacking a lot of diversity on our city council. Natasha Harper Madison is the only black woman I see. Um, we have maybe two or three folks who are Latinx. Um, we had Jimmy Flanagan, who was the openly gay um, council member, but I don't think we have a member of the LGBTQA community on council now. Um, and then everyone else, to me, seems to be white. Um, and so I, I think about that often too, of like, are they able to talk to their constituents who live in their neighborhoods who don't look like them? Um, are they taking those constituents' opinions into, into mind and into effect? Um, and so I think with food insecurity, I think folks think if it's just like, you know, you, you can't afford it, but it's also like there are communities where you can go to a, a food kitchen or a pantry near you if you can, if they have one there. Um, there are organizations in town that are doing food deliveries. Um, but I think it's also like the more we push out into other neighborhoods, the more we see the disparities. Um, a friend of mine, her parents live out in Westlake and we were talking after the storm, the Westlake grocery stores were stocked but you still couldn't find anything here in Austin. And we know that has to do with wealth and racial disparities and access and all these other things. And so while her parents were able to bring stuff in to donate, um, why weren't the Austin shelves start stocked, right? Like we have so many HEBs here and shout out to HEB always, but um, just to see like that sort of disparity of like, we see literally in the deliveries that you made who was important to you, um, what neighborhoods matter to you. And so I, you know, we see on council, the folks who are kind of always the most progressive leaning, um, Natasha Harper Madison, um, Greg Kassar, and Vanessa Fuentes. Um, but we see these sort of folks who constantly vote more progressive to make things happen and make Austin a better city for everyone. Um, we saw during the storm, Greg had pop-ups, Natasha was at Millennium. Um, so seeing the folks who are on council who show that they care, who aren't just sitting in positions of power and making decisions without thinking about the folks who, who it really affects. Dr. Philpott? Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, speak to the infrastructure because that was one of mine. And I think Bree hits the, the nail right on the head, which is we still have a lot of work in terms of creating a more progressive set of elected officials. I mean, one of the things that, that proves problematic is the battle between the mayor and the governor. And so when we take a step forward, we always have to worry about the state coming back and, you know, undercutting what we're thinking about. Um, 
and that you know that comes that plays out in terms of infrastructure as people have to move further and further out from the city limits how are they going to get access to things like grocery stores and to employment and to um, schools and and all the other things we rely on to live our day-to-day -day lives and for so long there was this singular picture of what austin was going to be and what it was going to look like and now we just can't afford to keep keep that vision of austin here so it's going to really take a, a number of really progressive people to think outside of the box, to think beyond a light rail system, to think beyond, you know, adding one more, you know, toll road to the city, but to to bring Austin up to date and think of it as now a big city as opposed to like, you know, a sleepy little town that it used to be. The name of this podcast is, you know, Black Lives Texas. You know, uh, one thing I'm curious about is, you know, Austin talks about as this kind of image on like most people in Austin. Now I'm not from Austin and like you, Bri, I moved here five years ago. So I'm a relative newcomer, but Austin sort of has this um, reputation of being hip, kind of being a place. Uh, if you're, you know, liberal or if you're blue, it's like the best place to move to in Texas because it's still Texas, but it's not all the other stuff about Texas that gives people from the coast or, or or who lean blue like you know panic attacks but at the same time you know i'm hearing you know with with just sort of how you know uh infrastructure uh housing affordability and so forth that this isn't the most welcoming place and quite frankly despite a lot of the diversity that austin likes to tout itself on it isn't a very diverse place either so i mean uh, is Austin a, is Austin friendly to African Americans? And if African Americans did want to move to Austin, what should they know about moving to Austin? I think people who are black who want to move to Austin know that finding black community can seem very daunting and at first impossible. Um, like I said, when I first moved here, I'm from the Northeast. I'm from Connecticut, so super diverse, very huge melting pot up there. Um, really close to New York and New Jersey, so like very diverse. So moving here to Austin was a, a culture shock to me of, you know, when I first moved here, I could go two to three days without seeing a black person. Um, that's sort of changed the last couple of years. Um, actually, a really close friend and I have been talking about getting black folks to stay in Austin longer. And it's that sort of feeling of like, well, I don't see people who look like me. So I'm going to stay at this job at this tech company for a year, have it on my resume and then transfer to like a Dallas or a Houston where I'll see more people who look like me. Um, so I think that's the thing that people need to know, like, while we wanted to change, you also have to stay here to help make it change. Um, I am one who was trying to move uh, this past year and it didn't happen and I'm grateful for it now. Um, but it was it was for sure kind of feeling that, that missing piece of something. Um, but I also talk about building community outside of my blackness, right? Like I have friends who I have met doing volunteering or speaking at activism things or, um, what people who are women, people who are in the LGBTQA plus community, like for me, finding community has had to get creative, essentially, like I might not be able to have friends who are black, but I had friends who identify with me for these other things or different things that we do. Um, but I think for me, it would be interesting to see the city invest in blackness. How do we bring more black culture back to Austin. Like um, Dr. Philpott was saying, East the East side used to be super rich in black culture. Um, and a lot of that has disappeared or it has moved up to Pflugerville and Round Rock and Georgetown and South to Kyle and Buda. Um, so are we giving out loans to black businesses? Are we 
um, giving them initiatives and, and things for people to start black businesses here. How, how are we investing in blackness in Austin? I think is a question we should start asking specifically our city council members. Um, again, I, the only black person I see on city council is uh, Natasha Harper Madison, um, but there are so many other black folks in Austin who would like to run for office one day, who would like to see themselves there in other positions of power. And, you know, I'm really excited that we have um, Delia Garza in the position that she holds now. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like it's been a lot of for lack of a better term, like this is the best you're going to get and you have to be happy for what you have of like, I don't have a black person, but I have a person of color, right? Like there's like all these different things we kind of have to like quote settle for. Um, but then also knowing that settling doesn't mean that's the best it's going to get. It's just the best we have right now and continuing to move forward and, and, and bring things to people, it's people's attention. I've been fortunate to be plugged into a number of networks professionally and socially where I've, I've been able to connect with, you know, people that look like me um, from all walks of life. And, and that's been awesome. But I also think that social media has been incredibly helpful in terms of connecting Black people together, both in terms of business interests, um, finding ethnic food throughout the, throughout the city, which, you know, when I first moved here, there, we didn't even have a, a urban or urban AC oriented radio station. So there certainly wasn't a whole lot in terms of ethnic food. But you know, just being able to connect with people on social media that know where the food trucks are that will specialize in Caribbean food or African food or soul food has been in, an invaluable resource that's come about in the last few years. And as Bree mentioned, there are pockets of, of the Black community. It's just that it's no longer centered. And so it is very difficult to find a community where you can find good schools, you know, go to a beauty salon or a barbershop, find a, a church home and affordable housing all in one space. I'll switch this slightly to um, African-American women voted 90% for the Democratic Party and are considered to be the party's most loyal bloc. Based on what you've seen so far, has the Biden administration taken steps to reward this loyalty, whether through policy priorities or cabinet appointments? The Democratic Party's top leadership, with the exception of Vice President Kamala Harris, does not reflect the role African-American women play in the party as local leaders, organizers, and voters. Uh, how can this disparity be remedied? I mean, the easy thing to do was through, you know, executive appointments. So not only does the president have the ability to appoint cabinet positions, but also judgeships. I think Donald Trump appointed one or none black federal judges in the last four years. You know, we can make up for last, lost time. There are lots of women who are uh, very much capable of holding those positions. And that, that certainly would be a, a great step forward. Yeah, I feel like we keep saying that this is the most diverse cabinet we've ever seen for a president. Um, but that being said, it's, it's not just race, right? Like we have people, we have a trans person, we have um, Pete Buttigieg who's gay. Like, I think we have to talk like racially diverse. We need to be very specific. Um, and also I think we need to acknowledge that like while Kamala Harris is black and a woman in South uh, Asian, she also has a history of really being detrimental to the black community in California. And, you know, while we're excited to see her in this position, we also can't ignore what she's done in the past. And so a lot of folks 
while a lot of black women specifically and black people vote for vote pretty democratic, um, it is still sort of like the lesser of two evils for us, right? Like we, we vote democratic because that's the best we're going to get. Like we know we're better off with a Democrat than with a Republican, but then also we need to really unpack um, the fact that people can be the, the two party system of Republican and Democratic, but there are still people who still are very centrist or moderate while being Democratic. Um, that isn't the sort of ramp we need, like Dr. Philpot was just saying, of we could be making all of these huge things of having black judges, black female judges, um, more, you know, just all these different things that could be going to affect, but it's still like tiptoeing and putting our foot in the water, deciding of like, how, how quote wild do we want to get? How progressive, how out of the pocket do we want to get? And to kind of go off on a tangent for a while, we saw during the presidential election when um, Trump was diagnosed with COVID, how Biden pulled a lot of ads and kind of like pulled in the reins of like what he had planned. And I was talking to friends, I'm like, if this was reversed, Trump would not have done the same for Biden. And so it's always also the Democrats like playing super like respectability politics when the GOP doesn't. And so I also get kind of sick of that of like, why do we always have to be the bigger people? Like we expect this of progressives and marginalized folks and women and, and you know, the people who are constantly berated and abused to be the ones extending an olive branch. Whereas when it's flipped on its head, it's not. So that was a tangent. Um, but yeah, I just think there's a, there's a lot still that, there's a lot still that has to be done. Baby steps are great, but I'm, I'm ready for full on sprints and runs. That's actually, that, that actually touches upon my next point, uh, Bree. And, uh, and you did touch upon this in your previous answer. Are you very disappointed by what you see so far? Or are you willing to give Biden a little bit more time? Because, and this, and this is something that I want you to weigh in on in a bit, Dr. Philpott, is I think right now there seems to be a big tension between sort of the centrist Democrats who are in power and then the activist wig who played a big role in helping animate uh, Democrats and getting a lot of attention so that I think it's fair to say a lot of people ended up voting for Democrats. I mean, just as someone on the left and then someone as, as an activist, are you sort of just biding your time or are you just like, you know, I really don't like what I'm seeing so far? I mean, to be perfectly honest, obviously I wanted Biden over Trump. And while it's only been 60 days, almost, um, I think I can I can see why we are taking our time after having four years of Trump because it is the people who voted for him who are, I know, watching like a hawk and especially after we just had the insurrection, right? Like, so I can kind of see the reason why things are moving at a slow pace. Um, however, for the folks who have been experiencing trauma in this country and who have literally feared for our lives for four years, um, I want grant, I want grant, I want big things. I want, I want reparations. I want healthcare. I want um, all these things to have this country be equitable for everyone. Like that part where it says for justice for all that has not happened ever in this country. Right. So while I can, the political side of me can understand the sort of tiptoeing in the, in the toe in the water, the radical activists left <laughs> living um, is sick of the tiptoe. I'm sick of 
okay, well, you just have to wait a little bit longer. Um, my Black people, people in this country who are marginalized have been waiting for years for it to be represented, to be given equality, to have equity, to have access, to have any sort of whatever. And I, I feel like we are constantly put on the back burner because we're expected to take the bare minimum and be happy about it. And I'm no longer doing that. And so if I'm by myself and accepting that, that's totally fine. But until we have housing for all, healthcare for all, um, parents who can send their kids to school and know that the kids are gonna come home because they don't have to worry about a shooting because we have gun reform. Um, we have people who are in the hospital who don't have to worry about hospital bills and going into debt trying to pay for healthcare. Um, while we have multi-gajillionaires who are on yachts sailing around the world, but we have kids who owe student student lunch debt, like it make it make sense. And so I politically can understand activism, I cannot. And so again, excited to have a new president in, um, but also realizing that while black women continue to vote democratic, um, we just know it's because it's the lesser of two evils, but at the same end of the day, it does not mean that we are going to get where we want to get. And uh, Dr. Philpot, I mean, what do you, you know, in terms of your analysis between sort of the activist wing of the Democratic Party and just sort of what the Democrats have to do as the, the party in power now and considering that everybody's saying that like in two years of midterm elections, the slim majority that they have now only gives them a certain window to enact certain legislative priorities by the Biden administration. What's your take on this? You reset a whole lot. I mean, just a whole lot. Uh, some of the things that, that came to mind when she was talking was this idea that we, we feel that we, we really only have one choice. And that's historically been true with the two parties. Like we've never lived in a two party system. Blacks have either had to be Republicans or they've had to be Democrats. And we think about, you know, Ice Cube coming out weeks before the, the national election or the presidential election and, and saying we need to leverage our vote. Well, the last four years have been pretty bad. It's been pretty traumatic on, you know, people of color, people of the LGBTQA community. And the idea that you would withhold your vote for a party that has been so damaging and hope that they would come to your way was just not, it, it just wasn't rational. So, you know, it, it really was only one choice this go round. You know, Biden wasn't my first pick for the Democratic presidential uh, <clears throat> nomination, but he wasn't Trump. And there was no way in this world um, I had experienced the last four years and was gonna opt up and sign up for more on the hopes that you know, we would get the Republican party to, to, do, to do good by us, to do well by us. Um, we also have to remember that, that Biden is one branch of the government and he's been very, active in terms of issuing executive orders and diverse in his, his appointments, but ultimately it's gonna come down to Congress to legislate. And another thing that, that I agreed with Bree so much is like, why are we taking the high road? The Republicans have shown that they have zero um, integrity when it comes to legislating. Why is it then that Democrats, I'm not saying abandon rules, but certainly you don't need to cater to another, the other side that has in no way thought of how you would feel if the roles were reversed. And so there are things that we need to get done in this country to heal and to move forward. I would tell the Democratic Party just to, just to go ahead and not worrying about making friends on the other side of the aisle. 
Dr. Philip, uh, Bree, thank you so much for your time. Um, this is my final question. So going into the next four years, what is your big prediction in terms of an event or an issue that's going to capture the attention of uh, Texas and, and nationally? So any big predictions or a big issue for the next four years? Okay, I have three in my head. One, Ted Cruz okay. gets voted out. I think Texans seeing him abandoning us um, really lit a fire under everyone. Two, I would also really love to see Joe Biden be the first president to denounce the KKK as a white supremacist group. And three, um, I think we're going to see here in Austin um, a lot of folks kind of waking up. I think we we have a lot going on politically and, and locally. Um, between a lot of work going on with a lot of organizations and coalitions, again, a lot of the stuff we spoke to, infrastructure, transportation, um, education, um, there's a lot of things that we we need to fix. And I think a lot of people are paying attention and have really felt this sort of awakening um, directly after the insurrection and then with city council going on. And so those are my really big like three predictions for what's what to expect the next four years. I'm going to take the doom and gloom approach. Um, I would love if Bree's predictions came true. I think that Ted Cruz's supporters will stay steadfast, much like Trump supporters did. Uh, there's this, this idea that compassion and respect are now partisan issues. And so in as much as Ted Cruz remains a Republican and still touts all those same type policies, his supporters are going to stay with him and find some way to justify him fleeing to Cancun in the middle of a crisis, the same way they excused all of Donald Trump's bad behaviors for the last four years. I think it, it will take the mobilization of different demographic groups, so to fundamentally change the makeup of the electorate to get Ted Cruz out of, out of his senatorial seat, as opposed to relying on you know, Republicans just to magically see the light, because we, we've seen that that's not going to happen. I predict that it's gonna get worse before it gets better. Um, I had hoped that the, the MAGA life would have hushed down, but it seems that they're still more emboldened and they still, they still feel that there's a, a claim and entitlement to the country that they have that others don't. And um, you know, as long as they keep seeing, that they keep maintaining that idea that you know, in two years and in four years, it's very possible that they'll reelect Donald Trump in four years. Okay, so you heard it here first uh, with those predictions. Um, I want to thank uh, Bree Jenkins of the Austin Justice Coalition for being here and Dr. Tasha Philpott, uh, Professor of Government at UT Austin for being here. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and insights and uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you again to our guests. Link to their work and organizations are available in the show notes. Black Lives Texas is produced by Tracy Lowe, Ricardo Lowe, and produced and edited by Mariah Gossett. Today's episode was hosted by me, Michael Veriza. To learn more about our work at IUPRA, please visit our website. The links are in the show notes. We will be back with more episodes this spring, so share the show with a friend if you've been enjoying our content. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>